So our topic today is the petty farsi. Did I pronounce that right? (laughs) Okay, great. You love them so much, you named your business after them. What is it about the petty farsi that you love so much? For me, they were a bit of a symbol. So the reason I chose them as a name is that they really represent the Niçoise approach to cooking. Enchanté. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about delicious French food and the people that love it, cook it, produce it, talk, write and photograph it. There's a saying that I love and that is the simple things in life are often the best. And to me, that sums up today's topic, the petit farci, which translates to small stuffed. But it's more than just small stuffed vegetables filled with nothing but flavour, the petit farci. I want to talk more about it, and our guest today on Fabulously Delicious is somewhat of an expert on it. In fact, Rosa loves them so much that she named her business after them. Rosa Jackson, thank you for joining us on Fabulously Delicious today. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. We're happy that you're here as well and just love talking about uh, food and all things uh, French food especially. But you're actually originally from Canada, is that right? So my parents emigrated to Edmonton in Western Canada in the 1960s. That was before I was born, but not long before. And my brother and sister were already born, so they were born in London. And my mother had originally come from Prague, so when they moved to Edmonton, It was a little bit of a culture shock, to say the least, especially for my mother. (laughs) It was, you know, it was not all that developed in the 60s. And I think, you know, there were wooden boardwalks. I mean, it was a prairie city, small prairie city that later would grow. And so we had this kind of mixed European Canadian childhood because I was very attached to Canada having been born there. But my parents still felt very attached to Europe, so we went back to Europe quite a bit. So with British and Czech parent, do you feel more European than, say, Canadian? I would say I feel strongly Canadian having grown up there, but strongly European having lived here for the past 25 years and spent part of my childhood here. So I'm one of those people that doesn't really know where they belong, I suppose, but I, I think France is my spiritual home. And you were very lucky as a, as a young child. You actually got to go to Paris twice when you were growing up. Is that right? Uh, so the first time I was only five and I actually went to kindergarten in France without knowing a word of French. I think my parents taught us to say we oui and non before their, our first day. <laughs> and I just used them randomly. <laughs> and my dad was quite a big food lover and cook. And he and I used to go off exploring the pastry shops together. And that was really some of my earliest memories of Paris was just walking around and seeing all those cars, you know, the Citroën de Chevaux and, you know, tasting cakes and ice creams and, uh, you know, getting a feel for the whole city. Well, it sure beats getting taken to Dubbo, which I'm sure you don't even know where that is. I had to wait till I was 30 for my first overseas holiday. So you were very, very lucky. Although Dubbo is a very beautiful place. So like so many, you were inspired by the likes of Jacques Pepin and uh, Julia Childs. What about their cooking do you think resonates with so many people in the States and in Canada? Well, for me, I think, well, a lot of it was personality, I think part, you know, just the way they came across and made it both incredibly informative, but fun at the same time. 
I think people really related to Julia Child and her personality and also with Jacques Pépin, the way they related to each other when they were on TV together. But for me personally, it was wanting to know more about how to make these French dishes that I tasted. And it was not that easy to find information on techniques. And so when my parents gave me this book, La Technique by Jacques Pépin, it was a real Bible for me because that information wasn't so easily available. And people like Julia Child were great at explaining technique and you know how these dishes actually came together because otherwise it would have remained a great mystery. Even if you had read French cookbooks, which I did at the time, they didn't explain it in that detail that an American like Julia Child, who's picked it all apart to understand how it really works, would explain it to Americans. That's interesting because I'm a little bit controversial in that I love Julia Childs. You know, it's one of the first book books I ever bought. But now that I've lived in France and I've explored French food and we live in a world that's different to when that book came out now, you know, you can get anything. You can be in the United States and get creme fraiche and the everyday cook might not have been able to do that. So what do you think of that? Well, I think... That belonged to a certain time when people were not familiar at all with French cooking. And of course, things have changed. And I think to cook a Julia recipe now, it's different than it was in the 1970s. You know, sometimes I make a recipe. When I was doing my online classes during COVID, I would make some of these classic recipes like Solmenier or Cocovin. And people, my students would say, oh, but Julia did it this way. <laughs> And I'd say, yes, I know, but, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's okay to do it this way too, because that's, you know, that's not the only way. And things have changed. Even in France, people don't eat food that's as rich as it was back then. So, you know, French cooking has evolved. Then I live in a place where the cooking, it does evolve, but maybe a little more slowly because it's a regional cuisine. So people are more protective of the recipes. Rosa, I've had a few people on now that have uh, gone to Le Cordon Bleu uh, in Paris and like myself and have had that amazing experience. But you have just an equally amazing experience. You actually worked there. Is that right? I did. Oh, my gosh. So one of my earliest jobs, <laughs> when I came to Paris, I worked in a tea room, uh, an English tea room called Tea and Tattered Pages. I don't know if you ever had a chance to, to visit. It was in... I mean, mid-1990s, so quite a long time ago. And there I met someone who was working as a translator at the Cordon Bleu, and he was leaving Paris, and he suggested that I apply. So I ended up doing that for nine months. And during that time, I just translated all the classes that, that were translated, which were all the, the basic cuisine and basic pastry, because after that, they considered people should speak enough French to be able to do the intermediate and advanced. So... So I did only the basic courses, but three times each because they were all three months. So can you run through for those that haven't been to an actual class in the Cordon Bleu, what is that class experience like? There, In the morning, there would be demonstration classes and they would last for about three hours. And the chef would be preparing a lot of things, especially if it was pastry. He just seemed to fill the entire counter with just enormous numbers of cakes and or I mean it was just crazy how much they produced and cuisine it would usually be one you know elaborate or less elaborate dish it was basic cuisine so it wasn't always too elaborate 
and they would be explaining everything and the students would have to take notes. And so they'd be sitting just like in a, in a university, you know, in uh, just watching and taking notes and sometimes sleeping. <laughs> I always noticed some at the back were sleeping <laughs> and I would translate everything that the chef said into English. So that could get really tricky if the chef also spoke English, because sometimes they would correct me on my choice of word. <laughs> I was going to say that because from my understanding, the chefs weren't allowed to speak English. They never did in my yeah. three months of going there. But it was only one night at a club afterwards, actually, that I found out that the chef had spoke English very well. In fact, he probably spoke English better than I do. Yeah, there was one that was actually bilingual. And he was half American. And so he did not speak English in class. But if I said a word that he didn't agree with, he would jump on me immediately. So, <laughs> Give you a look. And but with the chefs who didn't speak English, which was most of them, I sometimes would tone down their replies a little bit when the, the student would ask a question and they'd reply a bit abruptly or, you know, this is like a stupid question. <laughs> I would say, that's a very good question. <laughs> and then I'd give their reply. You mentioned how much food that they make, especially in pastry. That's what I studied. And I was lucky to have my husband at home waiting for the cakes and the uh, croissants and chocolate croissants and to take home to him to eat. So that was great. But often the students there don't. They're there by themselves and you can be cooking and making something in one day and then the very next day be making twice as much. So you can't eat it all. I think from now my understanding is that they actually have a cafe where they sell the uh, things that the students make. But when you were there, did you like take some of the students' creations home with you? I did. I was able to collect quite a bit of food <laughs> at, the, at the Cordon Bleu. And I lived with a French roommate, so I could only eat so much as well. And I was also having fun recreating the recipes at home in our toaster oven, because that's all I had when I first moved to Paris. So I was trying to make everything in this tiny little oven with two electric burners. So I didn't need that much extra food, but sometimes I would get, you know, even what the chef had made, they'd give to me. So I would bring that home. So I always had, I always said I was poor in money, but rich in food because I would have foie gras and, you know, all the luxury foods at home, but, you know, very little to spend, but that was okay. Apart from all that fabulous food, what was your fondest memory from your time there? From working at the Corner Blue, I think uh, friendships with uh, one of the chefs in particular, uh, Christian Guillou, who was a chef when I was there. There were a couple of chefs that I became very friendly with and that I've stayed friends with all this time. So I think having that nice relationship with the chefs and I think also because I heard things over and over and over again, their voices would always come into my head when I was cooking. So that stayed with me. Even now I can hear the chefs saying certain things, you know, little tricks and things. That was in Paris. So have you been in France that whole time since then or did I you have, go back yeah. to Canada? I, I had a brief spell where I went back to Canada because I ran out of money after about my first six months. Um, yeah, I spent six months in Paris. That was I had just started working at the Cordon Bleu and – I ran out of money, basically, and I went back to Canada, worked for another few months, and just gathered up enough money to come back again. 
and went right back to the Cordon Bleu. And uh, that time they had more work for me and I was able to stay. So that was great. And from then on, I, I always found jobs. So yeah, I just had that little stint. You now do food tours and cooking classes. What led you into doing tours and cooking classes then? Was that that experience at Le Cordon Bleu or did something else happen there? I actually had the idea of doing food tours before I ever moved to Paris. So I started a small company called Paris Market Tours around the same time I was working at the Cordon Bleu. And there was no internet at that time. So it was... <laughs> I don't believe it. Were you five? You must have been five, Rosa. <laughs> internet came shortly after, but literally there is no internet when I started my business. So I would put an ad in this little magazine called Periscope, which had an English language section at the back. And people, and I would just say, come to this metro station, you know, meet at the metro station and we'll do a tour of the market. And a few people would come or they wouldn't come. You know, I wouldn't really know in advance. And I would tour the market. And that was, as far as I know, the first market tours anybody did in Paris, in English anyway. And then I got a job after the Cordon Bleu working at the Time Out Guides as a restaurant editor. So I did that for eight years. I was their restaurant editor. And during that time, I didn't do the food tours because I was quite busy with writing and, you know, being a restaurant critic. But by the end of that, I thought I have so much knowledge now that I need to use this as a resource for people. So that's when I started. I changed the name of my business, my old business, which was called Paris Market Tours and called it Edible Paris. And it created a kind of custom itinerary and tour company. So people could either do a tour or they could just ask me for an itinerary so that when they came, they could have their restaurants and their food shops uh, I would do like a written walking tour. Yeah. I'm amazed by this because, I mean, uh, just something you've just said then about it being before the internet. So I set up a food tour business after being a master chef and in Melbourne and then in um, France, and it was all around social media. You know, that's where business came from. It was the best way. And TripAdvisor, I'm wondering in, in my head now, how do you actually – what did you actually people do to book a tour before there was the internet? <laughs> well, you'll never what did believe we do? this. They sent me letters from places like San Francisco. <laughs> wow. A letter. And I'm going to be there on this date and you're yeah. sending a letter back to say that you can meet me on the corner of this street. <laughs> they, yeah, I would, all my uh, publicity was through newspaper articles. So I would write, because I'd been a journalist in Canada. And so I wrote to newspapers, you know, travel sections saying I'm doing this. And then they would publish an article and then people would write to me. And that's how it worked. But luckily the internet came along pretty quickly. So that made things go a little faster. You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about French food and the wonderful and fabulous people that make it. If you're passionate about French food and would love to be a guest on the show, or do you know a fabulous French food producer, cook, chef, or just a knowledgeable foodie that you think I need as a guest, then please jump onto Instagram and DM me all about them or introduce yourself. I love people sliding into my DMs, so let me know as I'm always up to meet fellow French foodies or just foodies in general and hopefully bring them to you on Fabulously Delicious. My name's Andrew Pryor and my motto in life is whatever you do, you should do it fabulously. 
Thanks for listening and let's jump right back into Fabulously Delicious and stuff ourselves with some Petty Farsi. So our topic today is the Petty Farsi. Did I pronounce that right? Petty Farsi. You love them so much, you named your business after them. What is it about the Petty Farsi that you love so much? For me, they were a bit of a symbol. So the reason I chose them as a name is that they really represent the Niswa's approach to cooking and that they're using ingredients in a very thrifty way. So it's a way of stretching out small amounts of meat. Usually in the old days, they would use leftover meat. Now they people generally use some kind of ground meat. It can be mixed or just one. And the idea is to stretch out the small amount of meat with a lot of vegetables, herbs, uh, flavorings, and to stuff very small vegetables with this filling. So it's making use of the fresh produce, but also of leftovers. And to create something that's very beautiful, very aesthetic, but not kind of aesthetic and rustic at the same time, which I think is uh, is the way people in Nice like to cook. And also for me, the, uh, there was this idea that I'm running a cooking school. So people who come here, they're going to be stuffed full of information. You know, they're going to be well-fed by the time they left. So the Petit Farsi represented that as well. But is there a difference between a Petit Farsi and a Petit Farsi Provençal? And then I've also read that you've got a Petit Farsi Niçoise. I'm going to reply like a Niçoise. <laughs> so I'm going to say the Petit Farsi Niçoise are the real ones and the Provençal ones are the imitations <laughs> because it's a dish... <laughs> It's a dish that really originated in Nice. And in fact, it's one of the only dishes that you pretty much only find this version in Nice. So not to say, you know, you won't find stuffed vegetables other places because all over the Mediterranean you find them. But this version with the, what I described, like the meat, the vegetables, and then Parmesan, egg, and breadcrumbs, that's really local to Nice. So that then got sort of slightly exported to Provence where people in Provence also make this dish. But it is considered, I think even people in Provence would say, yeah, it's a dish that comes from Nice. Would you say, is it also a Mediterranean food then? Like, is there other countries that also do a version of it? I was in Greece this summer and they do stuffed vegetables. Yes. And they use, so it's, it's quite different, the filling. They use rice and they use mint because in Greece they like to cook with dried mint, which is not something that we use here. And it's delicious also, but here people never use rice in the filling. That's one of those rules. Right. One of the rules. Oh, okay. You know. We'll get into that in a minute. I love a good rule. Um, are they a side dish or are they a dish on their own? A, ma- they're, a main? They're a dish on their own. So, Many foods in Nice can be eaten as picnic foods. So uh, you can sort of carry them around and eat them outside. So that's typical of Niswa's cooking. So they could be part of a picnic. But generally, they're served as uh, either a starter or a main course. So they could be a starter if you just serve small amounts of them or a main course if you have the complete, like, usually there's an onion, tomato, there's a round zucchini, courgette. And there can be eggplant and there can be pepper. All right. Well, that just answers my next question because I was just about to ask, what are the other veggies that you can stuff? But I think you've pretty much named them all. But is it something that you're doing like at the end of their season or is it usually something that's at the beginning of the season? Is there, Or is it just something that can be done all year round? They would be a summer dish. So you're, you're wanting to use the small 
it's really important that they be small because it is called petit farcis. So nothing big, just small kind of golf ball sized vegetables. And the round zucchini are only available in the summer. So theoretically, you need to use those, but it's okay to use the longer ones and cut them into chunks and hollow them out as well. Um, the tomatoes have to be, you know, decent tomatoes so that rolls out the winter. <laughs> so I would say it's a dish you could make from about May to September. So I would say a capsicum it would be the perfect vessel to stuff because you just need to cut off the top and then take out the seeds and the, the parts inside. But to hollow out a zucchini, well, that's a little bit more difficult. Do you have any tips for our audience on how to do that? There are two different ways you can do it. So either you can cut it in half lengthwise and then scoop out the seeds and cut it into little boats. So they should be quite small. So you don't want to use like the whole... Um, the whole of the uh, half zucchini, if that makes sense. You want to cut it into chunks. Or you can cut, you can not cut it in half lengthwise and just cut it into chunks like lengths that are about three or four inches and then put them up on the cut side and scoop out some of the insides so that you can fill it that way. And you mentioned, I do think you said this before, but just to clarify, so there's no rice in it. No rice. So I, okay, so in, everybody has their own filling and there is, yeah, mine has, has developed over time. It came originally from a chef who runs a little bistro called La Merenda in Nice, which is a wonderful little traditional Niçois bistro. And he was kind enough to give me his recipe. And I based mine on his, but of course, over time, it changes a bit and it becomes more my own. So I use, uh, the meat can be veal. I quite like to use a veal sausage meat, but some people mix veal and pork. And I actually, I'm going to make some tomorrow. And I bought a mix of meat, which my butcher offers, which is beef, veal, and pork mixed together. And I think they specifically make that for, for petit farci. It mixes two different meats or three different meats is good. And then I use finely chopped zucchini and onion. So usually spring onion for the filling. And mushrooms, because the mushrooms add a kind of meatiness when they're finely chopped. And you, at, in the end, you can't really tell the difference between the mushrooms and the meat, which is kind of interesting. And then I use uh, gar a little bit of garlic, some basil, um, some a parmesan, egg, and a tiny bit of breadcrumbs, but I really go easy on the bread. Some people use bread soaked in milk. They'll use dry bread and then they soak it in milk and they press out the milk and add that. But I don't want the filling to be too bready. So I only use the breadcrumbs if the filling seems a little liquid before I'm stuffing the vegetables. And I hope I haven't forgotten anything. And the most important thing is not... So you cook all the vegetables. You actually chop them very finely. Some people use a meat grinder. Um, I use a food processor, but I'm very careful just to chop them. You don't want to get too much liquid out of them. You want to finely chop them without pureeing them. And then you saute all the vegetables and the garlic until the liquid evaporates. And at that stage, you add your meat, but you don't actually cook the meat. So it's important that the meat's still raw, pretty much raw when you stuff the vegetables so that then it cooks in the oven. And when it cooks in the oven inside the vegetable, it's going to give off juices and keep more moisture. Because if it's pre-cooked when you put it in the vegetables and then you bake it, it's going to be dry. Is it one of those things that's better the day, the next day? Well, all Niswa's food is good when it's 
rested for a while. So I, yeah, it's delicious when you warm it up the next day as well. Um, so I would say, yeah, don't hesitate to make petit farci at least, you know, in the morning, if you're serving them in the evening and just, you know, warm them up before you serve them. The taste of a vegetable in the Mediterranean is that when you're in any of those towns, cities, it's just amazing. Like I've never had that experience in my life. Um, I live in, lived in Australia and we have amazing produce there. We certainly do. But when you go to somewhere like Nice, I remember on my tour, we went to a lovely restaurant and we had Petit Farsi uh, in Antibes. And it was some of the best food I've ever had, like the capsicum, the tomato. They just tasted so amazing. What is it about Mediterranean food that just tastes so good? I think it's because the plants are struggling because the soil is actually quite poor and the sun is really hot and the climate is dry. So they're having to work, uh, you know, they're, it concentrates the flavor. So they're having to struggle a bit to grow and when they do produce fruit like tomatoes, they're not gorged with water. They're gorged with sun. So it's, it really concentrates the sweetness. And that's why they have so much flavor. It's like with wine, you know, the, in the regions where it's, um, they, the grapevines have to struggle more, they, uh, they produce better wine, more concentrated juice. I love that. They're gorged with sun. Is there any other tips that you could give somebody uh, when they're making a petit farsi? It's very important to pre-cook the vegetables that you're stuffing. So they're not going to cook much more in the oven. Uh, you need to pre-cook them to the tenderness that you want at the, you know, when you're serving them. Usually I boil the zucchini and the onions. You can steam them if you want to. Peppers, I would roast them ahead of time. But tomatoes, no. They, they are not pre-cooked because if you pre-cook them, then they're going to fall apart. They're the only ones that are going to completely cook in the oven. And then it's important to add some liquid to the bottom of the pan when you're cooking falsi and to baste them a little bit. So you can use, if you have a chicken stock, you can use that. You can even use the water that you've used to pre-cook your vegetables and just put like a, a half a cup of that in the bottom of your pan or a cup, depending on how big your pan is, and baste them a little bit as they're cooking. And especially when you take them out of the oven, just give them a last baste with the liquid because some juices will have come out of the meat and that'll add more flavor and moisture so that they won't be dry because there's nothing worse than a hard ball of <laughs> stuffing in a stuffed vegetable. If someone's coming to France, where should they go for a fabulous petit farci? Well, I, I can recommend the restaurant that originally gave me the recipe, which is La Miranda. <laughs> La Miranda yeah, in Nice. And also there's another family-run restaurant called Acciardo, which does nice petit farci as well. They're in the old, both of those are in the old town of Nice. It sounds to me like a petit farci would actually be a very healthy uh, meal. And you actually studied nutrition, is that right? I did, yes, in Ireland. Great. So you'll be able to tell us, is it a healthy meal? Absolutely. Yeah, it has <laughs> small amounts of meat. So, you know, what I learned in nutrition school was a little bit of everything. And, you know, when you, it's fine to eat meat, but not in excess. So this is a great way of making a meal that's really um, high in vegetables and with a small amount of meat. So it's got some protein, but it's got lots of different vegetables mixed in. And I think even kids 
you know, it's the kind of, they're chopped small enough that they're not going to recognize them. So you could probably sneak them past kids who don't like vegetables all that much too. Um, well, that experience at Cordon Bleu, you've now got your own cooking school experience. What's it like uh, teaching people how to cook? What do you enjoy about it? I enjoy sharing the culture of Nice, especially because it's a place that's quite unique. So I like to introduce people to something, an aspect of France that they might not know, which is the Southern culture that's more Mediterranean. And then I really love, you know, I'm not in one day, they're not going to learn all the techniques that I, you know, you might learn from Jacques Pépin. So they're going to learn a few things, but mainly they're going to learn to enjoy the process. So that's what I'm really trying to teach is taking time, uh, you know, savoring every step of the process, because often our cooking here is quite slow. And when you caramelize onions, for instance, you have to be prepared for it to take an hour of, you know, stirring once in a while and just enjoying watching the onions change color and smell different and become sweet and dark. And all of that is something people don't normally have time for. So when they're on holiday, they can finally take the time. And that's what I enjoy. And of course, meeting all the people from around the world is is wonderful. Hopefully when my tours start up again, maybe we can add a, a cooking class with you into yeah. one of my tours. I think that would be a fabulous idea as well. Yeah. Rosa Jackson, it's been a pleasure uh, talking to you and I'm so excited to have learned all about the Petit Farsi and can't wait to try one. Thank you Thanks so much for joining us on Fabulously Delicious. Thank you. It's been great. I can't wait to return now to Nice and the Côte d'Azur and hopefully one day introduce you in person to Rosa on one of my tours maybe. Rosa, it was fabulous learning about the Petit Farsi and of course your time at Le Cordon Bleu in Paris. So good to hear a different perspective than the one I had as a student. Thanks for sharing that with my fabulously delicious audience. Speaking of my fabulously delicious audience, thank you for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Don't forget, if you'd like this episode, then please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, and share the podcast around with your friends and family that are into food. I love to be shared around. If you'd like to support the making of Fabulously Delicious, then you can do so by buying me a croissant via the Buy Me A Coffee website. Or you can become a Patreon member if you'd like to support on a continual basis. Any help is appreciated so that I can bring you more fabulous people on Fabulously Delicious. And if you're coming or planning on coming to France, then why not book in a one-hour Zoom call with me then I can help you plan a fabulous trip. You can do that either via the Buy Me A Coffee link in the show notes or by checking out my website, andrewpryorfabulously.com. In 2022, you'll hopefully be able to come join me in person for some cooking classes as well as some small group tours of France. I'm Andrew Pryor. My motto in life is, whatever you do, do it fabulously. So why not join me here every week on Fabulously Delicious, the podcast. Abiento and bon app. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. 
tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.